0: Hi everyone, Shannon Tipton here and welcome to the Learning Rebels Coffee Chat where all the cool L&D peeps hang out. While you're here, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future chats. Today the cool kids are discussing debunking learningness learning myths? Will they ever go away? Probably not. For every Bigfoot sighting, there is a person out there advocating for learning styles. So now riddle me this, Batman. As good stewards of the industry, what is our responsibility when it comes to handling those who hang on to learning myths? Many HR and L&D professionals have learned these myths and perpetuate them through their network of peers. So how do we guide well-meaning professionals who believe that more studying equals better studying? Or you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. Or Dale's cone of learning. We can't run around like Don Quixote beating back the windmills at every turn. There's simply not enough time in the day for that. Nor should we attack, belittle, patronize, or condescend to others who may simply not know. So, the big question on the table today is how can we handle conversations about learning myths when they come up without beating people about the head, neck, and shoulders for having been misled? So, without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's coffee chat. And today's coffee chat is focusing on learning myths and our responsibility around them. I didn't want to spend a lot of time today talking about, you know, the different sorts of learning myths that are out there. We can certainly touch on that topic. But I really wanted to talk about how we can work with others Here's what I see happening online, and you guys can agree or or not, is I see a lot of posts on Twitter and also on LinkedIn that are you shoulds, you know, you should posts, you should do this, you should do that, right? You should believe this, you should believe that. And I don't feel that that paves the road for buy-in or in a lot of times, <laughs> heaven forbid, you know, that some poor new LD person, trainer person mentioned the term. I'm a visual learner on LinkedIn. Holy cow. They get beat up above, you know, the head, neck and shoulders, you know, and taken to the woodshed. And it's like, okay, that is not, how to handle this. So I really wanted to have a conversation about how we can do better. How can we be better guides? How can we support? How can we re-educate? How can we be good coaches and mentors? Because I remember when I first started out in the industry, I didn't know anything. I came from a little bit of history. I came from an operational background. I was an international district manager for a restaurant company, right? So I handled all of the Pacific Rim. That was my territory. And I decided to make the shift into training. I knew nothing, as a lot of subject matter experts do, right? So I know nothing. And I'll admit, when I was first producing um, training programs and finding my way through, I'll go back through some of my ancient records And I did this not too long ago. And I found a learning styles assessment test that I gave to people. I didn't know any better. All I knew was tribal knowledge. Everybody else was doing this. So I must need to do this. And I know that there's a lot of people who sit out there today who are in those same shoes. So I wanted to have a discussion about how we can be more helpful. I'm going to open up the mic because I've done enough talking here more than I usually do at the beginning of these things, but I wanted to really set the stage. So what are your thoughts around how we can do better about why we find ourselves in this position, you know, constantly having to redirect people and what is our next move? So what are your thoughts? Who wants to start the conversation today?
1: Well, I know that there's no credible evidence on learning styles. I do understand that there is learning style preference. Mm-hmm. So while I don't completely shut out the topic of learning styles, I always redirect it that this is your preference. This is your preferential way to learning. And if that those are tools that align with that, that utilize them, and then you actually utilize those tools to engage in learning, great. You have created ownership in your own learning path. So while I understand that there's been a lot of stuff that's been debunked on that, I do think for practicality tools that just because the evidence doesn't say that it is quote-unquote legitimate, there's still enough um, benefit for from the practicality side to give folks tools, at least a springboard by which to start with, in order to allow them to engage with what it is that they're interested in, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, the avenue I take with the folks, it's like, yeah, this has been not totally debunked, but it is a great tool to help you get started in the area of learning and utilize tools that you like to learn on the content that you're interested in.
0: Okay, thank you for that. So it's a redirection away from learning styles to maybe we have a preference. So I like that, what I call the gentle redirect. I think I saw Erica first, so we'll go to Erica. Hi, Shannon,
2: and good morning to everybody. Good morning, Shannon, when I was listening to you share about your origins, if you will, and all of us, I think, feeling the pain points of our origin stories when we learn, iterate, and evolve, I tapped into because I, too, have also worked for a, a
0: restaurant. And, <laughs> and we live to tell about it. <laughs> we live to tell about it. <laughs>
2: What I'm connecting to is something that I think is pervasive in what we deal with in our field of expertise and why these learning myths may continue to perpetuate. We are constantly bombarded by the idea that we can't do the job if we ourselves are not the SMEs, and this is something that we're continuously trying to talk through with stakeholders inside of companies to say, you know, I don't need to have been like you were mentioning, Shannon, you know, you were in operations Mm -hmm. and then you transitioned over to training. I think there's a lot of belief inside of organizations and companies that the people who are going to be really great at training were the people who were doing it. And then in the transition, there's not necessarily support systems in place to help them then scaffold around their operational knowledge with the training and learning and development knowledge that is essential. So I think one of the reasons why learning myths then perpetuate is we continue to get, you know, always leaning into Cami Bean, accidental instructional designers because they were really good operators. They either chose to transition or the company has chosen to have them transition And then tribal knowledge, as you identified it, is maybe the only thing that they're able to find and latch on to, and that there's not good support systems in place to allow them then to get the good foundational underpinnings of what we do in learning and organization and learning
0: and development. So, how do we handle the accidental trainer or the accidental instructional designer who means well?
2: Yeah, I mean, because I think there's a two pronged methodology here, you know, because I'm also thinking about. Back when I used to be on Facebook, <laughs> now I avoid it like the plague. Or no, you know, I'm even going to go older school. So, you know, warning, I'm showing my age here. When when friends would send me an email and it had a myth in it, mm-hmm. right? And I used to use the myth debunking site all the time to try and help my friends out. I think Zolt tries to do this well mm-hmm. on LinkedIn. Um, maybe sometimes he gets exasperated But it's A, I think, trying to educate our stakeholders inside of organizations that people who are going to transition from operational to learning and development need to have support and professional development provided to them. And those that we find as our peers in the general milieu of Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, kindly, gently help them to understand that this may be a myth that they're unintentionally perpetuating. I think we always have to come here with, what's the term that I'm, I'm missing? You're not thinking that they're trying to do this with malice, right? right? There's a term and I'm, it's escaping me in the morning, but um, you know, approach them that way instead of, like you said, if we're berating them and we're telling them they're terrible learning and development specialists, then we're killing off our new iteration of who we are. And that's not how we should be and I'm right. using a should now, should should people to death. So then I should say, I would hope that we would not want to do that because we want to continue to inspire the creativity and desire to be in this profession and helping to guide them through ways, like you said, with open-ended questions, maybe trying to dialogue and not just saying you're wrong and now you're a terrible human being for perpetuating a myth.
0: Right. Thank you. Great thoughts there. You know, and I, it does start with supporting You know, and often organizations don't do that. They just say, you're a really good manager, so now you should teach other managers how to be good managers. We've all lived that particular story, you know, without giving them any support, and that is a trickle-down effect. So that means that there's some education that needs to go up the ladder. We have to help provide the support that's needed to new people who are coming in beyond Oh, let's put them through a train-the-trainer program beyond that. So how do we get them proper coaching or mentoring, etc. I love where you're coming from there. Hi, Betsy. How are you? I'm great. Thank you.
3: Well, this is my first time attending this. So I'm really excited uh, to
0: connect with everybody. I thought that was a new name.
3: Yeah. I love this conversation because this is a very big challenge. And I love the conversation around we really need to develop our new folks into the industry. And I am a nurse by trade. I've come from the healthcare learning industry. And so we're the same as any other industry. Oh, you're a good preceptor. Oh, you're, you know, good with this group. Become an educator. And so, you know, you either keep teaching the way you were taught, which is generally the wrong way. (laughs) Yes. Or you take it upon yourself to grow. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time as a manager in learning, trying to develop our teams because you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And if you develop people and keep showing them new things, it's a little better. I will say the change is slow because the learning myths are sacred cows. We don't want to let go of them. And once people get a hold of them, oh, my God, they're not going to let go. So I kind of started introducing the thought of brain science, neuroscience, Mm -hmm. because in the healthcare industry, I could speak the scientific language and kind of help people understand these are the things that we do know about how we learn and introduce them to trying to design towards what we know currently. So I had some success with that but it's a tough road for those people who have been doing it a long time or new and they've been coached by someone else who, you know, hasn't grown in the role. I really do believe that we have to mentor and develop our new folks.
0: You're absolutely right. Part of the reason why I do what I do here, Mm -hmm. you know, is I've been in this industry for almost 30 years, right? If you don't Make an effort to develop yourself and to learn new things, then you're always going to be stuck, right? You're always going to be in that box. But I love where you're coming from. You're in a unique position where you can talk science to other people, right? And they get the science talk. <laughs> You've got a benefit there by trying to go from a position of science and doing it in such a way where you can not offend or, mm-hmm. you know, be accused of being patronizing or condescending, right? So I love that. And you're right. It is hard. We've lived with these myths for a long time. I believe they stick because inherently they seem to make sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It makes sense that somebody would have a style of learning. That makes sense to me. So I'm going to move forward with that. So that's why I believe it's so tough you know, to break that habit. But Bob, is it Bob?
4: Yeah, thanks. This is my first time here, too. and Welcome, thanks. Huh? I, I've enjoyed reading the uh, Learning Myths uh, on LinkedIn, and I've been doing this more than 30 years to age myself.
0: Let's have some old stirs.
4: <laughs> but I was fortunate enough to go through a master's program in my early 20s where I learned about in instructional design and learning technologies. I didn't develop these bad ideas through experience like some things that make sense. Let me share a story. I was in aviation training for a while. Somebody shared this with me, very experienced, very successful flight instructor. He said, I know that positive reinforcement does not work, but negative reinforcement does work. And he says, there's absolutely no question about it. From my own experience, I know it's true. When one of my students does really well and I give them positive reinforcement, they always do worse next time. When one of my students does really poorly and I give them negative reinforcement, I always do better next time. So there was no doubt in my mind that negative reinforcement works and positive doesn't. The fact is he was simply observing a statistical reality called regression toward the mean. It had nothing to do with what he said. It was just a reality that will happen every time. If you do your best, next time you'll do worse. If you do your worst, next time you do best. But his experience absolutely convinced him without a doubt that he was right. And that's the problem with having SMEs or content experts become pseudo learning experts. Mm -hmm. Their experience misinforms them so many times, but they're absolutely convinced that they're correct. And learning styles is one of those. There are others. Sure. I spoke out against learning styles 25 years ago and nobody else wanted to hear it. And now I'm vindicated because people have come to the side. But there's so many other myths out there that still
0: right. have to be tested. lots of windmills out there.
4: <laughs> One of the big problems is, you know, I'll probably agree with this. Some of the worst string I've ever seen is from content experts. But also, content experts have sometimes been very good. It's simply that they're two different skills. Sometimes a person has both, and sometimes they don't. So it's a crapshoot if you're saying, well, a content expert should be the instructor because they're the content expert. Same with SMEs though. I was on a recent project and the SME said, well, I know you're the learning expert, but this is what I want to do. So we're going to do it my way, you know, and they're paying the bill. So I gave you my advice and you don't want to take it. Okay. I think that's true. Uh, another one that's a hot topic is Addy. I published articles 25 years ago on how Addy was an outmoded methodology, and yet we still see it all the time. I haven't been vindicated yet on that one, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks for hosting this. It's kind of fun to hear everybody's ideas.
0: Well, thank you for that. You bring up some really good points about how subject matter experts come from a position of experience. In the good experiences, bad experiences, in between experiences, but that's the baggage that they're going to bring with them. And the hard part is, you know, breaking them away from that baggage, right? And having the conversations over and over and over again can be frustrating. And it's just, how can we take that different tact? I'll, you know, have a client that says, well, can you be sure that you're, you know, meeting everybody's learning styles? Like, no, I cannot. No, I cannot do that. But I don't take them to task for believing in that. I just say, well, what you're asking for is not a possibility. Here, this is why. Right. You know, so what are the workarounds that we can use? And yeah, there are so many, so many myths out there. I'll put this to the group. Is it also a matter of saying, we're gonna let this one go? I, you know, people still want to believe that you only use 10% of your brain. Okay. yeah. Yeah, have at it. You know, but people who are advocating, you know, Dale's Cone of Learning, is that something that deserves more time? So I think that there's maybe it's a choose your battles type of thing. But to your point, Bob, you get your master's in instructional design. Learning styles is one of the topics that they teach, right? So it's one of those things that just continues to make its way downward. And when it's coming from, if you went to school and you learned that at university, it's going to be a hard nut to crack.
4: If you went through a master's program and they taught you something, you're probably going to say, well, they're the experts. I'm frankly surprised to hear that anybody's teaching that. Yep.
0: Yep. I do a lot of work for ATD and I repeatedly come across people who say, gosh, if I had only knew that in my master's program, they taught me this in my master's program. Okay. Right on. Yeah,
4: I, I always just tell people, you know, the world's not going to accommodate your preferences. And then that's not a reason for it. It's just, and the other thing is, wh- what are we going to do? Create four or five different approaches to everything we teach so that you can select all video or all reading or something else. I always just say, it's not learning styles, it's good design. Good design is what we need to focus on. And if I don't want to deal with learning styles, I'll say good design will handle your learning preferences because good design is not going to use this one approach anyway.
0: Right. So good
4: design is the solution. That kind of steers us away from having that.
0: To have the discussion. Right. That's a great point. Good design will take care of itself. Okay, great. Learning styles. Woo. Okay. How about if we focus on design? Let's design this appropriately. I think that's a great approach. Erica.
2: Talking about today, the idea here, like what are our solutions or what can we do we're going to be good stewards, We know, we're <laughs> poor learning styles, but it's a really great example. I remember reading about the idea that it's not the learner's preference that we are to be designing to, so to Bob's point about good design, like what's the content and then how do you design the content? You know, is that something that should be a practice where they're actually doing it? And that's kinesthetic learning, right? So you're trying to comprehend the best way for somebody to take in that information. So Shannon, to your question that you're posing to us today is like, what can we do if we're being good stewards? I think maybe Knowing what an alternative is, and it's not so black and white, but the only kind of visualization I'm coming up with is like a coin. So if somebody presents us with learning style and they're feeling like, but I learned it in my master's program, which I'm also very sad to hear because I did not learn that in mine. So yikes. And then us to be able to flip the coin on its head to say, oh, you know, I'd like to maybe help to show you or perhaps help to expand your comprehension that we're not maybe talking about how the learners think that they learn best. What we're talking about is good design methodology about how do we have somebody take in this piece of content? That means we have to know that ourselves, which means to your earlier point, We must always be iterating. Mm -hmm. We want to be stewards that we're the ones who are going to consume that information to say, oh, these are myths. What is the information that helps me to understand the thing that is other than that myth? Instead of just being like, that's a myth, batting it down. Right. ask, well, why do you know that? Or why do you say that to be true? Because then we go back to tribal knowledge, like Bob's story shared with us. Mm -hmm. Well, this is my experience. Therefore, it must be true.
0: I think you and Bob both same message there that I really appreciate is someone's coming to us about, you know, X, Y, Z myth, just flipping the conversation on, okay, that aside, what content, what's the context of the content that's going to be successful? And my approach has always been Let's understand the context of what we're trying to get and let the content speak for itself. So if I'm trying to teach you how to turn a widget, what's the context of that and what's the best content that's going to help people know how to turn a widget? It has nothing to do with style, preference, reading, activity, kinesthetic. It's what's the best content or best approach that's going to help people turn a widget. You know, so if you focus there, yes. then maybe we don't have to, in some cases, have to have the debate, at least right then and there. Later on, we can go to Erica's point, you know, help me understand this. Where did that information come from? Because sometimes I go from a place of ignorance. I just say, I've, I've never seen that before. I don't know what you're talking about. Help me understand where that came from and see where they go. So I don't know. I like the approach of just saying, let's just focus on the content, people, right? And that helps with the learning styles myth. What about some of the other ones though? So if we talk about the forgetting curve, for example, okay, Betsy, Betsy's like about, Betsy just rolled her eyes so far back, she almost fell off her chair. So how do we debate? Is that let's, let's not think about the forgetting curve or Dale's cone. Let's just concentrate on content. How is it that we have the conversation then? Because I just saw a whole other graph that somebody posted on LinkedIn, really pretty picture about the forgetting curve. And I just was like, oh, for God's sake. So how do we handle those particular conversations when we're not in the context of talking to a client, but I'm just talking to you and you bring this up to me? What's, what does that conversation look like?
5: I read an article by some cognitive uh, psychologist. How do you turn back the myths and make the truth stick? Was part of the title. Okay, great. And it was more like more like a general strategy of like all learning myths. And the basically the takeaway was just repeat the truth, don't repeat the myth, and if you have to repeat the myth, add a disclaimer. And your explanation of the truth, make it as simple as possible to the myth believer. Because if it's a complicated explanation, they'll just fall back on believing the myth. Those were some key takeaways from Love that.
0: that. I think you are so right. They say to do that with children, right? When we're dealing with children, it's like, let's reinforce what we want them to know, not what we don't want them to know. And we say this with learning content too. Teach what you want them to do, not what you don't want them to do, right? And so that's why when I'm going through content in workshops and such, I say, don't make a mention of don't do this. Just leave that out of the conversation because for your luck, that's the one thing that they're going to remember and then they're going to twist it around and they're going to end up doing what you don't want them to do. So I love that approach, John. Very nice. So we'll see if we can't find that article. I see hands all over the place. I think I saw Betsy first. I
3: love the comment that was just made about trying to reinforce, you know, what the truth is, because really, once you start telling people that, oh, you're going to forget 20% of this, blah, 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 or you're an auditory learner of this, people who come to learn begin to label themselves. Yes. And they begin to say, well, I can't do that because I'm an auditory learner, so I'm not a visual learner or and trying to get people to understand you don't have to label yourself. You don't have to limit yourself. Yeah, I think as designers, it's up to us to find different ways to help people remember and reinforcement is huge. Mm -hmm. And I think if, you know, when we go to design, I love don't tell them what they don't need to know. Target your information to what they need to know. There's even as we evolve as an industry you know the idea of pedagogy and andragogy is kind of blurring because mm-hmm. we are learning so much about how our brains work anyway and you know it's not so different sometimes you know in the adolescent versus the adults and you know we've created some confusion i think for them at times too because They really want to define themselves. And the more we tell them what we think they might be, I think it's harming our learners. So I really like targeting the information. I like the positive end of it and being able to get through that way.
0: Thank you. And I like that point, too. And that could be another angle that we can take with other um, learning professionals is to say, do you believe that Myers-Briggs, right, DISC, learning styles, et cetera, leadership styles. Don't you feel that labeling people perhaps is not necessarily the right way to go? So we can turn that into a question perhaps and have a good, healthy conversation around it. So thank you for that. Maureen.
6: Thank you. So a couple of things. The first is about if somebody brings up the learning curve, like one of our colleagues or peers brings it up, I would say kind of turn it back on them and ask them, well, what do you mean by that? Or what is your takeaway Mm -hmm. from that? Or how does that apply to you? Because sometimes people will drop some of these myths to appear learned or like they are on top of things. So just finding out what their perspective is on it. That's one thing. But the other is around where people think like, oh, they're this style, therefore they can't do this. We can all do a better job of building in reflection time in our learning and saying, okay, based on what you've just taken in and what you know about yourself, what are some ways that you can commit to making sure that you apply this or that you continue this learning? Where do you want to know more? Like have people take ownership. I mean, I I know that I'm guilty of it, trying to like provide it all for them, but then we are cutting off their ability for them to be curious and learn and let them customize it for themselves, not use our, I mean, we can provide some ideas, but have people do that and then they can share with others and then they can learn from one another. So it doesn't need to come from us.
0: I like that, Maureen. It's really practicing our own questioning skills, isn't it? You know, so if we can go back and use an appropriate style of debrief or reflection with each other, you know, to get to the bottom of where did you learn that and how is that supposed to apply? And so deeper questioning and ironically, or coincidentally rather is the appropriate word, the next coffee chat is all about reflection and debriefing. Jessica. Jessica.
7: I wanted to raise my hand as the vulnerable person who did not really do the pre-reading before joining today. And I have been a person that's guilty of perpetuating myths. And so I'm really enjoying this conversation. And one question I wanted to really zoom in on was Ettinghaw's Forgetting Curve. So when we have used this kind of as a strategy, it hasn't been something like, you know, I'm going to live and die by this, but it's been more of a, how do we set? a context. So I'm going to bring in the forgetting curve and I'm going to bring in the learning styles. So I want to ask for some feedback on this. So I've got my eye on the chat for you guys to say, Jessica, no, just thinking about this all wrong. (laughs) What we try to do as much as possible is knowing that it's kind of a process. We try to set an atmosphere where somebody can learn, come and discuss it, apply it. So actually do it and then come back and reflect on Mm -hmm. it. Get some feedback, what worked, what didn't work, how can I tweak it? Because so much of what I think gets forgotten is because I'm not really going to do what you tell me to do in a training just because you tell me to do it. I'm going to do what my leadership says is important. I'm going to do what I see gets results. So we try to, as much as possible, get like, that leadership sponsorship up front and that messaging saying, hey, you're going to go and learn something. This is important, right? This is just about who we are or how we do things. Then they come and they're they're bought in, right? What's in it for me? Why am I here? How is this going to make my life better? And then afterwards, are they getting follow-up and coaching? Is somebody talking to them about what they've learned? Is somebody saying, let's try it out? I've observed you. Here's some feedback. You know, what worked or what could we do better? So to me, it's not about repeating the same message to them. It's about kind of going through the process and experiencing learning. And that's really more for like, what are the skills or behaviors that I want to change? Or what are the skills or behaviors I want you to adopt? So I'm
0: thinking about this like frontline training and leadership training too, to some degree. So what's some feedback on that? Sure. I'll give you a, a couple of seconds of my thoughts and then I'll turn it over to the group. But your approach is spot on. So regardless of what is underpinning your approach, be it the forgetting curve or learning styles, etc., the approach that you're taking Is solid. That whole tell show do, you can't go wrong with tell show do. And it's all about reflection and helping them bring relevance into that. The forgetting curve, the issue with the forgetting curve is not that we do not have a forgetting curve. It's been taken wildly out of context. That's the issue with the the forgetting curve. And just so for your information, like Ebbinghaus created a study on the forgetting curve on one person himself. Okay. So there you go with that. It's like, that's not really research, is it? If you're only doing a study on just you, but there are important foundational underpinnings there that we do forget things we will. And so now how you structure the learning around that is solid. So I think you can feel good about what you're doing for sure. And also one last point, thank you for putting it out there. You know that's what this group is all about. We've all said things that have made us go oh huh, where did where did that come from? You know, but you know that's what we're all here for. We're all here for support and guidance, right? So thank you for being vulnerable and bringing that up. yeah, and do you think the idea of like I'm only
7: going to remember twenty percent of what we cover today is not about a random twenty percent but it's about relevancy. Mm-hmm. like I saw because I've always felt like if you come to a training or if you take a training, I've developed designed whatever. That if you walk away with a few gold nuggets that help you, I'm happy. Like, not everything is going to be relevant to your general personality or your style of doing things, but it's not such a bad thing. It's just,
0: you know. No, it's realizing that it's there. And just as an FYI, anytime you see a study that ends with even numbers 20%, 25%, research doesn't work like that. You know, so you know that somebody's rounding up or rounding down and then. Why are they doing that? So that means automatically that makes me question any of the numbers that come in front of me. So I'm going to turn this over. Who would like to build on what Jessica was just talking about or offer her any guidance or maybe you have a shared experience?
1: Oh, Amanda. Okay as it relates to folks forgetting information, the underpinnings that you're talking about is exactly what I anchor folks in. It's how relevant is the information to you? Even in fact, your own ownership of what it is you're learning is a huge component to it. In addition, I often tell folks that how you sleep, if you don't sleep well at all, that affects the ability for the brain to consolidate information from short-term to long-term because we need REM, that's what our brain does. When you can not necessarily focus on the forgetting or learning curve, but focus on what they have control of as it relates to that knowledge that they want to retain, that helps them kind of take it with them.
5: I mean, I had a spirited discussion in a, a LinkedIn group called Learning Myth Busters, and I encourage everyone to check that out. Okay, One, along with everything else in L&D, it's situational dependent, you know, the shape of the curve. We all do forget, but what is the shape of the curve? You might have a traumatic experience in your life, and you might vividly remember that every day. And then another thing, context-dependent, you might just forget that right off the bat. Mm -hmm. So in my program, I had an educational psychology uh, book, and uh, they do show the curve in that book. However, it is interesting. There's no numbers on the axes.
0: Oh, okay.
5: So... I thought that was kind of interesting to point out. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah.
0: Point. And then of course there's Clark Quinn's book uh, about busting myths and really great book. If you want to familiarize yourself a little bit more with that. And I think that all of this is leading us to, you know, a place of support. You know, it's okay. Forgetting curve. Awesome. You know what? You're right. Right people do forget, let's throw the numbers aside, but let's concentrate on how we can help them retain rather than worrying about them forgetting, you know, so what are some of the methods that we can use for that? So using what you guys have already talked about, you know, turning it around to say, well, what does this mean for the content? What does this mean for the participant, you know, for the humans, you know, within our organizations, what does it mean for that? all great comments here. Anyone else want to add something? And I'm reading some really good stuff in the chat. What other pieces of advice? Is it Evelyn or Eveline? Eveline. But Evelyn, it's okay. It's pronounced in Dutch, but uh, it's okay. Yes. Eveline. That's very pretty. What is this chart that you posted in chat? Would you walk me through that?
8: Yes. It's something that I use. I
0: developed
8: a kind of methods for acceleration of learning in a group like students or like uh, colleagues and uh, what i did is it's really important that people reflect first on themselves on the knowledge why do i want to study that and i have core questions that you see in the visual and i use it in an individual conversation and the first individual conversation i have is with the learner, I will say. And the second, because it are ongoing conversations, the second conversation I have, because I have had all the first conversations with the group, it's like I have the aggregated data from the group. And then I'm talking with the second conversation with the individual, I'm talking like I'm the group. And in this way, they start to position themselves and they know what they can give and get from the group. And if then they feel valued and they are much more and their motivation, go from motivation to engagement and even involvement. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make it more uh, like automatically or digital with the bot, but that's not possible yet because uh, artificial intelligence is not that far.
0: It's too narrow, it's still too narrow. Yeah. How might you use a diagram like this to support each other? How might we use it? This is just a diagram to explain. Yeah. From this
8: diagram, I have a matrix of like 42 or 43 questions, which are connected with loyalty, with the four core questions, with positioning, with motivational positioning. And yeah, this is a kind of
0: visual to make it a little bit clear for other people. Yeah, I like that because I think we can turn models like this on ourselves. I use it also for myself. Right, <laughs> exactly. How do we? And I, I'd love to learn more about that. So if you want to, you know, shoot me an email with this, that would be great.
8: I have uh, written three blogs on my website. I will put my website on the blog uh, on, on the chat. Sure,
0: great. We can investigate it there. Yeah,
8: and three parts from where I started to think and how it's building up. Okay. I'm still doing some research on it and trying.
0: With different kind of groups, but I will put it on the chat. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Right, because I think it is about when we see an opportunity, it is about that gentle redirect. It's about giving people grace. We're human, we're going to be wrong a lot. So when we realize that, you know, we have spoken from a position that maybe is not as accurate as perhaps it should have been. You know, we all step into that. And then it becomes, how can we help the greater good? Last week, we talked about being good, not last week, week before, we talked about being good stewards of the industry. And this is a continuation of that conversation. How can we be good stewards of the industry and support ourselves and support our peers? For those new people who are coming in, You know, those subject matter experts who are coming in, how can we grab them and put them in communities such as this one or others, you know, to help them learn and grow? How can we do that? How many of you are working with a team of people or you've got, you're working with, yeah, Erica. Okay. You're working within an L and D team within an organization or are, yeah, Renee, you work within a team. So Renee, I'm curious. How do you handle? This sort of conversation, not necessarily this specific conversation, but when you feel like somebody on the team is headed perhaps in the wrong direction, maybe the content is not organized appropriately or what have you, how do you handle that conversation with them?
9: You know, I don't think we're having that many conversations like this. I don't know if it's just that we agree with each other or if it is, which is possible (laughs) or... I, but I do speak up when, especially with my manager, if she is taking the same approach that we've taken over and over again, I'll speak up. And I'm like, well, what about this? And what about that? And sometimes I win and sometimes I don't win. And we just kind of have a conversation about it. But it's not necessarily about myths or anything like that. I think if, if I came back and I said learning styles and the forgetting curve, I don't know that anybody would react to that.
0: But that's okay, because I think one sort of leads to the other, isn't it? If we've got a group, for anyone who might be watching or listening to this later, if you're working within a team of L&D people, trainers, and it's not necessarily that it's a learning myth that they're perpetuating, but maybe it's just poor content development. And so that conversation becomes almost the same. It's like, how do we provide guidance for those who may be new? Because if I go back and I think about you know, some of the mistakes that I've made in the past and some of them were ugly, you know, how can I have had a conversation with somebody who would have helped me rather than me stumbling along and figuring it out on my own, right? And I think that those conversations are necessary.
9: I think you're right about that. And I think maybe the approach is what we've been talking about all along is thoughtful questions about, okay, why did you do it this way? And have you thought about doing it this way and that sort of thing it's probably more useful than saying, no, those are not true. Right.
0: Right. Cause I see that a lot. Like I said, in the opening, I cringe and I get it because I think somebody, you know, here Zolt is a, he's always, he's always in the middle of some conversation like this and I can hear his frustration in his words. I can hear him talking when I read his words and I get it. It's frustrating to say the same message over and over and over again. But realize that just because you've said it a hundred times, that doesn't mean that the person you're talking to has heard it a hundred times. The person on the other end has only heard it once. You might have said it a hundred times. So that's why we have to be careful about how we approach this and how we approach certain conversations. So, Erica, I see your hand. I'm not sure if it's an old hand or a new hand. New hand. I just wanted to
2: add to the idea that if we are working in teams, one of the challenges, and we can't discuss it further today, is what if we have people who've been identified as senior on our teams? And what if they try to counteract any of the work that your people are doing? And if they're the ones who are trying to perpetuate
0: something and they're saying, no, you're wrong. (laughs) Great question. I'm going to throw that out to the group. So I hear the voice of experience with Bob and John, and I know definitely with Don, and I know also with Jason, it's you're working for somebody, be it a client or a manager, boss, person, and they are saying, no, this is it. How do we handle the conversation?
4: I was um, working with a young consultant a few years ago, 25-year-old guy, and he was telling me that, that the client who was an SME, well-respected, very knowledgeable, didn't agree with what he was suggesting. But the fact is what he was suggesting was correct and the SME was incorrect. He said, but they don't want to listen to a 25-year-old. Take yourself out of the equation. You could say something like, you know, I was reading a research article on this and here's what they said. And I think sometimes people say, well, that's just your opinion. Why is your opinion better than mine? Even though you may have multiple advanced degrees, of course, your opinion probably is better. But if you can cite research that supports something, then it's not your opinion. It's like, well, it's your opinion versus data. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't pit them as like, well, my opinion versus your opinion. It's like, we're both out of the equation. We're just looking at the research and saying, what does it say? And that seems to be a better approach.
0: I love that approach. I've used that approach myself. It's, well, you know, the data, I like Heather's comment in here. It's, you know, we're going to just start questioning. We're going to show them the data. You know, I have yet to find somebody and Jessica, yes, absolutely, in the comments. Leadership likes data for the most part. Good leadership, let me preface that. Good leadership likes data. Good leadership likes research. And if you can just say, hmm, I just read this, you know, or here's this. So you're right. Because sometimes we've all been in that shoes, right? Where you've been talking about something over and over and over and over again. But then when you bring in a consultant and they say the same thing, now all of a sudden everybody listens. Okay. So it's that same sort of thing, right? Where it's like, I'm presenting you with the expert either on paper or within data or within YouTube or Ted talk or whatever. Right. So here's the data. And I absolutely support that approach. All right. Amanda, real quick, we're at the top of the hour.
1: I was just going to say verbally what everybody's saying in the chat is that it sounds like it just comes down to peer to peer mentoring or peer to peer coaching. If it's someone that's on our team and the biggest thing that can do is like the four W's, not five W's, but the four W's and H. Everything but why, because why can often put people into a defensive mode and scarcity mindset. Oh, love so it. Instead of why, why did you make that choice? Like, how did you come to making that decision? And I have found that utilizing the same sort of questioning, even for those that are higher up, where you're then managing up versus peer-to-peer coaching, it's just a little bit different. And then I often, after I've had questions, shown genuine curiosity, if you ask, can I provide you with some feedback or would you be open to hearing something that I've observed? You've then kind of built a safe, trusting rapport. Psychological safety trust is like the linchpin for everything. And if you have that capacity by which to build that by showing genuine interest, Maybe they will then be open and receptive to hearing what you've observed, hearing some feedback that you have to share, because then it's not coming from a, you are wrong (laughs) perspective, because we've had the opportunity to hear them out, because there may be nuggets of truth what it is that they're saying.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. And I think that's a great way to close this conversation up. And also, this comment, this last comment from Jessica in the chat about being bright Be brief, be gone, right? Nobody wants to listen to a lecture. Plop the information down and call it a day. And speaking of plopping the information down and calling it a day, this conversation went quickly. You know, this was a great, engaging conversation. Thank you, everyone, for contributing. And thank you, everyone who is new to our chat today. It's always great to see new names and new faces. I appreciate your time. And as I said earlier, Our next coffee chat, not next week, but the week after on March the 3rd is on creatively debriefing and reflection. So how can we bring debrief techniques and reflection techniques, not only into the live classroom, but into virtual settings such as this and e-learning applications, because we all know that's where the rubber hits the road, right through reflection and debrief. So how can we use this simple yet powerful technique to lift up, Maybe our lift up ourselves, but also lift up our participants. So thank you very much, everyone, for being with us. I hope you have great plans. I Me, mean, I'm gonna go shovel the walkway. I don't know about anybody else. Any good plans this weekend?
4: Well, I live in Minneapolis, so we probably have more snow You probably
0: do. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but most of it's off the streets, but we may be getting more of it next week. So I don't know, uh spending some time with my family.
0: That sounds like a good plan. How about you, Bonnie? Love the glass you love glasses. Thank you everyone for hanging with us for another Learning Rebels Coffee Chat. Well, this was interesting and clearly still a hot button issue. And you all had opinions. And fortunately, the ideas and thoughts were positive ones. We understand that people who spread learning myths usually don't mean any harm. They're often just repeating what they've been told by their network of peers someone they respect and trust, told them about attention spans and goldfish. It sounded logical, so therefore it must make sense. We've all been there. And as we discussed, the industry is full of accidental trainers. Therefore, we need to be careful when having important conversations like these so we don't scare or intimidate people and discourage them from reaching out again. The ideas for handling these types of conversations were brilliant, such as how about turning the conversation around and using questioning techniques to get to the heart of the belief or guiding people away from a conversation that continues to focus on a myth and rather focus on context and content. And lastly, simply repeat the truth. Don't repeat the myth. Shift the focus. So for those of you who regularly encounter these types of conversations, I hope there was an idea or two that resonated with you. Well, you want to join us live? And I know you do. Go on over to learningrebels.com and check out the events page and sign on up. In the meantime, stay curious, be rebellious, and take over the world. Bye for now.